Hello, and welcome back to another episode of Open Floor. I'm Andrew Sharp, and on the other line, Ben Golliver. What's up, man? Not too much, Andrew. You know, it's been a very eventful week. I completed, I put the wraps on the top 100 writing. It has been signed, sealed, and delivered, filed to the editors in New York. So that was a great... Congratulations. Uh, a great <laughs> I know monument. that was tough. <laughs> yeah. To, to celebrate, uh, I ordered Indian food, which was great, and then also watched Michigan season end in week one. So that was fantastic. And you reached me this morning. I'm in the middle of World War Three with a colony of ants that have attacked my beloved lemon tree. So I, I'm very glad to take a break <laughs> from my very eventful week over here to talk some hoops with you. You know what? I'm really sorry about the Michigan football loss. As I told you a couple weeks ago, I picked you Michigan should be. in the wind's pool. And I, I didn't intend to curse them, but I fear that that's kind of what happened and how things played out. I mean... The first half in particular was just a complete disaster for Michigan football. I I have a lot of confidence in John Harbaugh generally, or Jim Harbaugh, excuse me. Um, but I cannot believe how bad the play calling was. I can't believe that that's what you've been living with for the past few years. And I'm just sorry all around. I'm sorry for the role I played. I'm sorry for your your suffering as a Michigan football fan for the last 20 years. It's been tough. Yeah, to be honest, I kind of halfway checked out on this season as soon as you made your prediction. You know, you heard me <laughs> instantly react when you said that. It said, oh, great, it's going to be a seven-win season. That's looking like an excellent prediction on my behalf. But you should not apologize to me. You should apologize to the guys at MGO Blog. <laughs> yeah. The guys at MGO Blog, their podcast, it sounded like they were all ready to just go on strike, you know, just to quit their jobs because of the way that game went. And that's tough. Uh, and, you know, deepest apologies to the people it whose really real is. lives revolve around this this poor franchise. And uh, you tried to draw a comparison. Apologies to the student-athletes themselves, too, because, I mean, they worked hard all summer. They had no idea that I was going to pick them in the in my wins pool. And, you know, my sports karma has not been great lately. My track record with the Wizards has not been great. The KD to DC thing could not have ended any worse than it did. Uh, and compounding matters, and this is why I honestly should not have done this to you. I actually won my wins pool last year and made a pretty nice amount of money on it. It was my first year ever doing it. And so coming in this season, I was full of confidence and feeling great about where things were headed. And huh. that's always like the number one red flag. And uh, I actually, I very nearly went 0-4 in week one with my, my pool. We, we picked four teams and I was bailed out by LSU winning on Sunday night. But uh, it's not off to a great start. So that's, that's our college football update. You know, I'm noticing a recurring theme here, Andrew, because last year you told us that you had won your fantasy basketball league the previous year. Then we do a fantasy podcast. <laughs> you, you hand out all your picks and you immediately don't mention your team all season long because you get roasted. You know, now you come back this year and you claim that you won this win pool last year. First of all, I'd like to see some evidence. If you're in this win pool with Andrew <laughs> and he actually won it last year, please email openfloormail at gmail.com to confirm it. Because as soon as you're handing out picks this year, uh, they're going belly up. But I have really, really good news for you, Andrew. We've actually What's decided that? to structure the rest of this podcast on you giving out your picks 
for next year's NBA MVP odds. <laughs> so here we go. You're either going to be right and you're going to feel great about it, or you're going to be wrong and I'm going to be making fun of you at this time next year. Either way, I feel like the listeners might be winning here. Yes, indeed. Here we go. This is one of the things that I like to do before every NBA season. It's because I feel like right now we're kind of in no man's land where it's a little bit too early to jump into like serious preview mode. Um, Not that we'll ever really be in that mode on this podcast, but like writing wise, I wrote about the MVP odds this week because it's kind of light and it's, it's a nice way to just sort of like ease into a return to basketball writing. And uh, let me, let me stop you right there. First of all, you don't get to like take credit for this amazing thing that you love to do before every season. Andrew, it's the MVP race. Everyone's interested in the MVP race. (laughs) I'm just saying it's my post Labor Day go-to move. Okay. That's, that's what I'm Uh, saying. I will say this. Your column was excellent. You included some names that I definitely did not expect to be on any betting. Like if if you could throw money away on betting Lonzo for MVP, you have too much money. Okay, do not do that. But you included, you know, some goofier names like Lonzo. And then also you you really broke down nicely uh, the favorites. And, you know, I think in general, uh, this is one question I wanted to ask you because you do do this this post regularly. How many realistic MVP candidates do you think there actually are in every given year? Like, of course, you had to run through like 15 of these guys. But when you're doing this, you're ultimately coming to a group of finalists when you're writing it, right? How many finalists did you see this year? And was it more or less than sort of a typical year? Yeah, well, that's a good way in here because it did seem like there were fewer candidates that that felt realistic this year than there have been in years past. And part of that is because it's hard to imagine James Harden winning again. It's hard to imagine Russell Westbrook ever winning again. Um, it's hard I to imagine so. Steph Curry. I for, for whatever reason, Steph is almost as polarizing as Russell Westbrook. Um, and it's hard to imagine him or maybe KD could win it. But that Warriors team is so stacked that they're almost like graded on a curve. Um, And so they kind of get short shrift in some of these MVP discussions too. And so right there, you're removing four of the five or six best players in the league. And so then like that starts to thin the herd a little bit in terms of who can really go do this. Okay, let's start with the Warriors because I I did think that was interesting that their odds, I think what Steph was 15 to one and Katie was nine to one. Yeah. So both of those, I think the instant reaction is like, that's pretty good value. You know, if you're talking about two of the top three players in the league and, you know, it's not like a two to one thing. Right. Um, Are you completely convinced that the Warriors stars will split the vote? The backlash is still so strong against the Warriors is going to hold up through this coming season. Or is there any way one of those guys could maybe like tweak it, whether it's, you know, somebody else gets injured or they just, you know, completely explode and have an insane year. I mean, is there any way you can see one of those guys kind of edging into this combo? Yeah, I mean, I think the case for someone like Steph is that he literally creates the most value in terms of the the gravity stats and the stats of his teammates. And um, if like if he if he had been healthy for the full season last year, there would have been another good case to make for him as the most valuable player in the league. And, uh, and I think the, the, the reason to sort of believe in that scenario is that 
a lot of people like the the MVP discussion in general has gotten so much more technical lately that you may get down to April and and have people who kind of look to numbers to see who is just technically speaking creating the most value. And that's Steph. What you talked about with them a couple weeks ago is that if Steph is healthy the entire season, that they they'll win 65 games almost without trying, almost by accident, and I think that can happen and if they're in that range like you're going to have to vote for Steph and KD almost by default to be somewhere in that top 5. So they're definitely I don't, I don't want to make them sound like they're out of the conversation altogether, but it's just hard to imagine cuz like narrative matters with this stuff and and impressing people and surprising people all of it's kind of a factor and they don't they don't really grade out well in those bullshit areas. You're right. I think narrative and then also the consistency over the 82-game season really matters a lot. I think it was really telling that LeBron was like gunning to play all 82 and lead the league in minutes and all that last For year sure. because I do... I do feel like that was kind of on his mind of like, okay, obviously he needed to do that for his team to be successful because the Kyrie trade and all the injuries sort of, you know, put them behind the eight ball. But also like he understands that having that sort of like day in, day out conversation where you're always being discussed and you're always in the highlight reels uh, helps you build that momentum in this conversation. It is a little bit trickier to imagine Golden State wanting to kind of play it this way. I think the way one of their stars could get in is – they win 65, 67 games, like you're saying, by accident or easily. Uh, Houston regresses a little bit like people expect. And maybe Boston is like really good, but not totally elite. So it winds yeah. up being one of those situations where like Golden State's easily the best team in the league. And then the counter narrative becomes well, like, why wouldn't re- we uh, reward their best player if they're so much better than everybody else? We can't just let you know, jealousy and so, <laughs> envy kind of uh, cloud cloud the conversation, right? That's how they yeah. would get into this. So what you're saying is is basically a scenario in which the Warriors are so much better than anyone else that it would be like historically reprehensible to to pretend that like LeBron winning 51 games deserves MVP over Steph winning like 68 or 70. Yeah, because the argument would be, is it better to be like a good team and like grind it out and work so hard to just be good? Or is it better to make it look easy as this like incredible yes. team that's easily better than the rest of the competition? And I think that argument would tend to favor Steph probably over KD because, you know, Steph is like the most effortless player at the league, right? Like when he's got it going, it's just he, he does it differently than everybody else. It doesn't look hard. So I could yeah. see maybe that storyline developing, but I think you were right off the top. You know, I think these guys have a real uphill battle to be in the MVP conversation. Well, and I also think they're they're playing for something completely different at this point than most of the league, um, which I, I can't blame them after the way 2016 played out. Um, I don't think the Warriors are ever going to completely invest in the regular season ever again. Um and uh, and just to be clear, I think Steph is the most valuable player in the league and has been for the last four or five years. But it's just the way this conversation works, it, it's it's kind of skewed against him a little bit. Um, but moving hey, can on. I under, let me underscore that real quick, what you're saying about what they're playing for something different, right? Because Draymond had a great quote not too long ago saying essentially that there's 82 game players and then 16 game players, right? And of course, his point mm-hmm. is like, we can turn it on for the playoffs, like our ceiling at that level 
um, is just different than everybody else. So when I was writing his top 100 blurb, I was like, okay, Draymond, how well do you pass the 16 game uh, player test? Like, are you sort of like, you know, uh, walking what you preach, in other words? Needless to say, he passed it incredibly well, okay? In the playoffs, he led Golden State in minutes, rebounds, assists, blocks, and steals. His defensive rating was 99.5 across the postseason, which is obviously incredible. And keep in mind, like, they're having to gut out a lot of those games without Steph early in the playoffs. He was, you know, he's listed at 6'7", right? He defended uh, nearly the most shots of anyone within six feet during the playoffs, and he allowed just 54% on those shots, which is very similar to, like, Anthony Davis or Clint Capella, you know, the guys who are considered, like, elite shot blockers, right? So Draymond could really crank it up a notch, and I know that you were one guy who was rightfully pointing out, like, hey, he's not really in sixth gear during the regular season. I think when you've got guys, and he's, like, their third best player, right? If your third best player can crank it on that hard... Uh, that tells you that, you know, KD and Steph, who both had really strong postseasons as well, uh, you know, are probably going to be in that cruise control mode. And then being in that cruise control mode uh, will take you out of this specific debate just because of, like you're saying, the consistency factor um, and then just sort of how much valor and like being a one man team, you know, winds up, you know, often playing into this conversation. Right. And Draymond was also hurt for most of the playoffs and was playing with like one working shoulder and couldn't shoot and was still amazing for almost every game the Warriors played. And uh, yes, he's he's one of a kind for sure. Um, but elsewhere on the list, we can just run through some of these quickly. Uh, Jason Tatum and Gordon Hayward at 150 to 1. Now, Tatum MVP buzz is obviously just hilarious, um, but Hayward... Why is it so I, funny, Andrew? What's so funny about it? <laughs> Shouldn't he know, be in man. this conversation? <laughs> I, I watched a lot of videos of him in empty gyms in Santa Monica looking fucking fantastic, and Celtics fans are fired up. I'm, I'm not here to take shots at Jason Tatum. He's going to be great. But beyond Tatum and that whole conversation... Gordon Hayward could come back and be uh, like at an all NBA level for the next six or seven months for the second best team in the league. And like, like the Celtics, depending on what the Warriors turn into, the Celtics could easily have the best record in the league also. So 150 to one seems pretty high for, for Hayward and what he's capable of this year. So first of all, I would encourage all of our listeners to go read Andrew's breakdown of all of these odds. He did a really nice job, like I mentioned earlier, but you should definitely go read it to see if you took the same takeaway I did from the article, which is you just want to vote Gordon Hayward for MVP. Like when I was reading between the lines <laughs> of your blurb, like you were doing a really nice job of like, okay, here's the positives of this guy's argument. Here's the negatives. Like you just basically wanted to crown Gordon Hayward as 2019 MVP. I mean, who do you think you are out here, Andrew? No, first of all, to, to be very clear, this is a quick MVP breakdown that I wrote this morning. So it's not, I don't want to get people's hopes up, but the Hayward thing it's funny because after I filed it, I started to think about it more. And a point that I didn't mention with Hayward is Kyrie's health. And Kyrie is at 16 to 1. And we could talk about him too. Um, Kyrie's health is still a pretty big X factor. And like we don't really know 
what version of him we're going to be getting. And even if he comes back 100%, who like it? he hasn't played very many full 82-game seasons over the last couple years. And it wouldn't even make sense for the Celtics to, to ask him to do that. So he's he's probably going to rest more than usual this season. Um, and if he does miss extended time, then like the door is wide open for Hayward to sit there and be the hero uh, in Boston and kind of be the, become the face of that team. I don't Andrew, know. I, Andrew, look, I'm not a, you, look, to be very clear, I don't think Hayward is really like on the KD superstar level, um, but he just, I feel like we're going to need a figurehead beyond Brad Stevens for these Celtics uh, this year. You're not allowed to go to Nantucket next year if you come back with these takes. <laughs> come on, Andrew. You can't be out here saying that Gordon Hayward is going to be the MVP. No, look, I know you're not really saying that. I think you're on to a point, though. The gap between Kyrie's odds and Hayward's odds is too wide, right? Because That's they both I mean. have health questions. Uh, it's not totally clear that Kyrie will necessarily be the figurehead best player alpha guy on that team next season. It's possible. Uh, but Hayward is a very, very good player. And, I, and some of the top 100s in years past, Hayward's actually been above Kyrie. Uh, so I think you've got a point that maybe Hayward's being undersold by this. Uh, but again, you know, it made me chuckle that his name's even in this conversation. You know, he's, <laughs> he's like not even really top five best guys at his position, is he? And I, and even if Boston's a, success yeah. winds up being a huge story, it's really hard for me to see. Like, if you're going to get down to the end of it and try to tell me that he's a better MVP candidate than Kevin Durant, I will lose my mind. I will say that is all narrative. Get out of here, you know? <laughs> no, 100%. And if you go back a couple years, remember there, there was that big debate over whether Gordon Hayward was going to make the all-NBA team, which would have swung things in Utah's favor and allowed him to pay, allowed them to pay him like $200 million or whatever. I was very much on team Gordon Hayward is not all-NBA. But I'm just saying he's going to look like he's at that level playing in that Celtics system this year. Um, and so be prepared yeah, no, for a, a lot of no, eye-rolling. And, and like we're all going to have to get through this together. You've evolved. He's on your favorite team with a, a coach you treat oh, like God. a demigod. Stop. And, you know, you probably got his jersey. You probably went out after I gave that great lecture to Keith on last week's episode about wearing jerseys in public. You probably got yourself a brand new Mitchell Ness, Gordon Hayward authentic, no. and you're probably wearing it around D.C. with all your buddies, right? Let me tell you something. If you catch me in a Gordon Hayward jersey, then it is 100% time for an intervention, and I hope that you will step in as a friend. Um, but until then... James Harden at 11-2. I, I, I mentioned this earlier. I can't see him winning back-to-back MVPs. He's just not at that level. It seems like the Rockets are going to probably regress a little bit this year. And, like, we don't want to overstate that too much because the Rockets are still going to probably be very good. Um, but when you win 65 games, like, they weren't as good as a 65-win team last year. And so they're probably going to be closer to, like, 55 wins and finish in second or third in the West this year. And that like that's closer to the true version of what they are. What do you Well think? here's the thing. Let's just say they win sixty five games again next season. Let's just give it to him. Does mm-hmm. he get less credit for that next year because he's already won an MVP? I think yes. You know, I think unfortunately that's sort of how voters think. It's like if you're not raising it up to a seventy win team or you're not yeah. winning sixty eight or you're not doing something else new to get people excited and you're just kind of like only, quote unquote, winning 65 games, 
uh, your candidacy is going to take a hit. It shouldn't be that way. It frustrates me that that's how people look at it. I think every MVP race should be sort of a one-year vacuum. Uh, you know, uh-huh. you only judge what happens during that regular season and sort of none of these other factors. But I do think that if I really thought that's how it went, I would be being naive, right? That's that's just not how it goes. I think yeah, he's got... Right. And uh, it's, uh, it's funny because Harden has also been the beneficiary of that recency bias in the past because the year that he almost won it against Westbrook, um, which I guess was two seasons ago, he was coming off of like... His, the worst season of his career where he was out of shape for six months. The Rockets were the most openly miserable team I've seen in like the last 10 or 15 years. It was incredible. And uh, and so people just forgot how much talent they had. And then when, when they finished, I think they finished third in the West that year. Harden was like the only explanation people had. But really, like the Rockets were, were never quite as awful as they looked uh in 2016 too so it worked in his favor yeah and i think also you know chris will probably be healthier this season than he was last year and also i think capella's stock has really risen right so now it's more guys are getting in on the shared credit of houston's success and so i think that that will even though it shouldn't uh, damage Harden's chances, I think that will kind of open up a conversation of like, well, look, he's playing for a loaded team. They should win 65 games. They've got, you know, two certified all-stars, all-NBA level guards, and Capella who could, you know, be on the fringe of the all-star conversation. Like, uh, you know, well, they should be doing what they're doing. And that that's annoying because that's also what's happened in Golden State here uh, the last yeah. few years. It's like once you set that high bar, then, you know, everyone expects that. Um, Can but I, I ask also you think one it's question, reality. though, on Harden? So here's the thing. I like Harden. I've come to really respect him through the years. And I no, don't want to be stop, stop hot takey here. <laughs> I do. I just watch him and I wonder whether his game is just like tailored for the regular season and isn't as effective in the playoffs. And I do kind of mentally put an asterisk next to some of what he accomplishes in the regular season at this point, just because we've seen things get complicated for him in the postseason over and over again, the last four or five years. And it's not that he's awful in the postseason. It's not that he's like gutless or a choker or whatever, but in the same way that like DeMar DeRozan, uh, just no, benefits no, from some of the calls that. he gets Andrew, during the regular season. I'm just saying it's a phenomenon that There's exists. No and the failure comparison. to apply it to Harden might be kind of a blind spot with NBA Twitter. First of all, like 19 responses to this. Number one, when you say <laughs> I've when you say I've come to respect something, usually you're talking about the Spurs or the Rockets. Deep down, you do not respect them. You're just saying that so I won't flip out on you. I know I'm onto you. So just keep that in mind in the future. Right. Okay, you're going to have to do a much better <laughs> job of proving well, that no, you actually respect. I am people. sincerely working to grow here and meet you halfway. Okay, I'm doing my part. There is absolutely no comparison between James Harden and Demar Derozan in the postseason. You got to get out of town with that. Now there have been some major shortcomings in, in critical moments in the playoffs. No question about it for James Harden. Even his biggest defenders would admit that but you have to give the guy credit for what he has done and his top 100 blurb which will be coming out uh next week it's a subliminal shot at you andrew because you love to take the recency bias you love to say oh 27 missed three pointers oh two for 11 against oh, san antonio it's and just- not recency bias to say he has never been 
as good in the playoffs as he has been it in is. the regular season. If, and that's, if we have you, six years of evidence here. It's not recency you, bias. If you only judge him based on the last game, like the ending of those seasons, then it is recency bias. He had three 40-point games in last year's postseason. All right. He worked to... Fucking Warrior series. <laughs> listen. Continue on. <laughs> listen. Listen. He had they wiped two very good teams or, or good to you know very good teams off the court in Minnesota and Utah. He was absolutely critical there. He had a huge bounce back game in the middle of the Warrior series when there everyone expected them to fold, including you. I'm sure were predicting and like getting gleeful that they were going to fall apart once the series went back to Oracle uh, and they get uh-huh. blown off the court in Game Three. He had a very strong Game Four. I'm not saying he's a postseason hero. I just say you have to be a little bit more nuanced than just saying, oh, he's a bad postseason player. DeMar DeRozan didn't hit a single three-pointer in the entire series against the Cleveland Cavaliers. He got ejected. He got benched. I mean, this was a guy who's just completely oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. a zero in the playoffs. To put him in the same conversation as Harden, whose team no. sailed to the Western Conference Finals and took Golden State within one game uh, of a, what would have been a monumental upset, is a ludicrous comparison, Andrew. Come I'm on. just saying that they are two. It, it's the same phenomenon, and it, it's happening on a different scale with Harden, where. During the regular season, he plays like a Hall of Famer and maybe the best shooting guard we've ever seen outside of like Jordan. And then he turns into a regular all-star in the playoffs and is it, he's easier to, def- to defend and the things he does well are less effective. And I think he was not- still a top, I think he was a top five player in last year's playoffs. Uh, I okay. think that's how I would I would phrase it. And so I would not call him a regular all-star. I would say he was not the MVP of the playoffs. That was clear. He was not the best player on the court uh, for very many stretches of the Western Conference Finals. Uh, there was times when both KD and Steph uh, and arguably Draymond were better than James Harden, and yeah. yet he still had them in the mix, right? So I think... It's too going too far to say a regular all-star, but I there is definitely slippage in his game from the regular season to the playoffs, but that there happens we for go. an awful That's lot of guys. That's all I was looking for. I was just looking no, for a no. little bit of concession from you. It's because, fine. Absolutely not, because never concede, never apologize, all right? Never admit <laughs> defeat. Now... How many right. players don't? How many players don't slip though? I guess that's my question. Like, are you saying that every single guy, if he was going max all out, chasing an MVP during the middle of his prime, uh, is going to look, uh, you know, worse in the postseason? I think that applies to virtually everyone besides basically LeBron. Um, yeah. Because you're getting to play so many easier teams, they can't scheme for you. Uh, you know, they they don't get to see you multiple times in a row. You're not playing as many minutes in the regular season. I mean, I just think that's a pretty natural phenomenon. I don't I don't think his drop off is as big statistically as a lot of his critics like to suggest. That's that's my point. Okay, that's fair, and it is. It's really frustrating. This is another case where like the state of the league and and what the Warriors have done makes basketball discussion frustrating because like. It's impossible to grade Harden against the Warriors because, like, the deck is so completely stacked that, like, of course he lost and of course he failed. Like, anybody, I mean, literally every other player in the league would have failed the exact same way. So I'm not pinning that loss on him entirely. I just, like... He wasn't great in the Utah series either, and like this has happened several. He times wasn't now, bad. So. He wasn't bad in the Utah series, though, Andrew. Come on now. Okay. Like he was. Right. He was good. 
He, he, like, I he think, wasn't I think Hall ultimately, of Fame MVP level. That's what I mean. I think he was, again, I think he was a top five overall player in the postseason, including the Utah series. I think Chris was ultimately the determining factor in that series because he was best equipped to exploit Gobert and kind of like pull him away from the basket and just snipe from the mid-range. Harden opened that series with 40 plus points. It took all the air out of Utah's sales. I mean, that's a pretty solid showing. Okay. Um, well, moving on, the Embiid-Simmons odds. Let's Let's hit them real quick. 16 to 1 for Embiid. I really can't see him playing enough games to get some like sincere MVP love. And also, it like the, if you're the Sixers, you should be lobbying him to to play fewer games probably. Like 60 to 65 seems like a good zone for him. Simmons though, at 28 to 1, I actually really like as as kind of like the best long shot on the board. What do you think? I think it's another good reason for people to read your post because you went from trying to punch out Simmons in training camp last year to now (laughs) anointing him a a potential MVP favorite who's going to run a Magic Johnson-like open open floor, uh, you know, fast break style. It's going to be incredible. And then I believe you even dug out some statistics saying he could follow in Kareem's footsteps by winning MVP in his second season. Very, very deep cut pulls for you from <laughs> from basketball well, reference. I was impressed and I was blown away. I thought this guy was horrible. I thought this guy was a shouldn't have been the rookie of the year. I thought this guy, you know, couldn't shoot and he was gonna crimp his team's offense and he's not a real point guard. What happened to all that, Andrew? Well, first of all, I read the Simmons note on Kareem in a CBS article that was published like a month ago. So credit to CBS Sports. Uh but what I would say is that I think Simmons, I'm not a believer, but you could make a good case that he, that the final two months was when we really saw him come into his own. And particularly like that final month when Embiid was on the sidelines, he was a force of nature. And he kind of, uh, the, the Simmons that we remember is the, is the version that we saw in the Celtics series where he just kind of broke down completely and uh, and checked out. And that was a really rough look. But the truth of who he is and who he can be, particularly in the regular season when teams aren't scheming specifically to stop him, uh, is probably that those final six weeks. And so I could definitely see him coming in like maybe 15% better on offense and, and averaging close to a triple-double. And if the, the Sixers can somehow win 55 games with him, and, and particularly if he sort of like steadies the ship through another one or two month Embiid injury, like he'll have a good argument for, for being in the top three or four candidates. I would say it's a little premature, but I, I do like where you're going with that. You know, I'm in the middle right now of reading a, a great book. It's called Boomtown by Sam Anderson. It's all about the history Ooh, of Oklahoma City. Out. And it talks about the Thunder. You know, everyone's always asking us for book recommendations. Andrew, five-star recommendation from me, okay? I'm the the Postmates of podcast host right here, giving out great reviews to this book. You will love this book, guys. It's quirky. It's funny. The reason why I bring it up is Sam does a, a brilliant job of drawing contrasts and comparisons between Kevin Durant and Russell Westbrook sort of earlier in their career, right around the time when they actually decided to pull the trigger on that James Harden trade. And he winds up essentially saying, 
you know, Durant's the more talented player. Um, and yet by sort of force of will, it winds up being Westbrook's team a lot of the time. And that's just, you know, the weird dynamic that they were trying to work, uh, work through. He's like, you can't even really call them a yin and a yang because, the the opposites parts aren't so clearly defined that it's just kind of like a big you know messy mush of of white and black uh you know coloring by the end of it right i'm wondering is there a comparison here between this duo and then simmons and Embiid? because i think obviously Embiid, he's the process he's got the personality he's very interesting he's big he's loud he's brash uh he's very very popular um, but what you're you're seeming to suggest is that Simmons could wind up being maybe the more reliable or the more you yeah. know kind of uh, dependable uh, and even potentially statistically like the more impressive guy if he does wind up getting into this kind of triple double mix. Um, and so he may wind up maybe eclipsing Embiid to a certain degree in a couple of years. Is that sort of what you're forecasting, or how do you think that two man dynamic is going to play out here going forward? Well, I agree with a lot of what you said or what you're trying to imply that I said. Uh, I think that they are very much the new Westbrook and Durant. And by the way, I really want to read that book because Oklahoma City's history is pretty fascinating to me. And and the way that city has kind of evolved over the last 30 years is, is really interesting. But not interesting enough for me to read a book on it by itself. So weaving in the thunder as like an entry point is perfect for me. Uh, So I'm glad to hear that it's as good as I thought it would be. Um, But as far as the Embiid Simmons thing, I think, I mean, you and I had been talking about this, watching the Sixers down the stretch last year. He Simmons is if at, at the very worst, like, the best insurance policy in the NBA because if Embiid goes out, you can just spread the floor around Simmons as like a .5 and and just play at 150 miles an hour and uh, run teams off the floor. And he's really good at that. And that was as a rookie last year or, or a rookie with an asterisk next to his name. Uh, but next year and the and the next few years, like there's no reason he can't build on that and become even more dangerous. And so. I think that that tension is going to be there because Simmons is best when you're playing really, really fast and you're not going to be able to do that when Embiid is out there. And there's, and so stylistically, it's going to be kind of an adventure. It's a good problem to have, obviously. Like Either one of them could end up being top five players in the NBA. But um, yes, to, to answer your question, it's one of the most interesting situations to monitor in the entire league uh because okay so on on this question though who does the fan base support because that's a really interesting thing that sam does in his book is okay that's what i'm saying right now for sure but what sam does in his book is kind of uh digs deep into like comment uh sections of the fan blogs and and finds like old you know writing to sort of summarize the fan base's mentality at various points like before the hardened trade after the hardened trade uh, because a lot of thinking has shifted, you know, over the last five years, as it tends to do. Right uh-huh. now, if Sixers fans were forced to pick between, uh, you know, Simmons and Embiid, it's like ninety nine point five percent would pick Embiid, right? Yeah. Um, and I, but I think sort of as things unfolded in Oklahoma City, Kevin Durant was the golden boy. I think he had a similar Q rating, you know. But by the time everything shook out all the Thunder fans just became Westbrook diehards. And even if they were frustrated well, by his turnover problems early in his career, 
Come yeah. on. They they became Westbrook diehards when KD fucking left. <laughs> like, they weren't skewing towards Russ when KD was still there. In fact, I bet if you went back to the comment sections on, like, Welcome to Loud City or Daily Thunder during the Western Conference Finals in KD's last season— I'm sure there was all kinds of Westbrook groaning and I, I like that. But, but the, I was out, look, I was at the building. And those fans was always really interesting to me. It was textured for sure. I'm not saying it would be have swung all the way to uh, Westbrook's favorite by that point, but I do think it was a lot closer to 50 50. I mean, I remember a fan coming up to me. And I probably told this story before during game uh, game six in Oklahoma City when Clay went off and went crazy. And he came up and said, the only thing you need to write is to write, blame KD, blame Kevin. I mean, he's like, you know, basically put it all on Kevin's shoulders. And I think that uh, there was a lot of loyalty built up over those years, but I don't think he was still at the same level of popularity that he had uh, gotten either during his MVP season or when he sort of first embraced that city. So I'm not suggesting that Embiid's like going to, you know, plummet here and it's going to be all Team Simmons. I'm just saying, don't you see a scenario where, if Simmons plays like an MVP, like you're describing, Embiid winds up maybe being in the way of their most uh, entertaining style of offense, uh, and you know they don't necessarily click perfectly. Don't you think some segment of the population is going to say, "Okay, I'm now Team Simmons," even if it's 25 percent or 30 percent or 40 percent, and it becomes yeah. more of a debate? Yeah, yeah, definitely, and particularly as like the whole team gets more expensive and you, they're starting, they they begin to be forced into tougher choices. Uh, absolutely, things will start to shift a little bit. Um, but I think right now, there's also still a version of Embiid who can kind of like get in better shape and make better decisions and and just like dominate whoever is in front of him. Um, and like, we saw that a little bit in the Celtics series. He had a couple stretches where he was so far and away the best player on the floor, like the, I think it was the third quarter of game five, the one that they ultimately lost, um, where Embiid was just a monster. And if he's that guy, then the Simmons stuff becomes kind of a moot point. And uh, so it's it's just we kind of have to wait and see. But I to, to bring it, I, I think Durant and Westbrook is a, is a different thing. Um, but like there was certainly a point that I hit as a Wizards fan where like I loved Gilbert Arenas, but he was injury prone and really expensive. And when the Wizards drafted John Wall, it was clear that like the brighter future was with Wall and I was very much ready to move on. And that could be the the point that the Sixers hit in a couple years if Embiid can't stay healthy and Simmons is just the better player. Good. Well, I think this is why the the MVP post that you wrote is so informative because it lets us think about what could develop here over these last couple of years. Hey, we're running long on this conversation, so I want to just pepper you with one final question to maybe wrap it up. And I'm sure we'll talk about LeBron too here briefly. But Giannis or AD? I think Giannis's odds were five to one. AD's odds were four to one. If you had to bet on one of those guys for MVP, who would you bet? Uh Giannis for sure. I think that. AD has a much tougher job in a tougher conference and we you know his health he's he's not as injury prone as it's sometimes seen if you listen as it sometimes seems if you listen to people talk about him but his health is still a little bit more questionable whereas Giannis I think we're going to go 
watch him play like 40 minutes a game and hit a new level of dominance with the Bucks. And the Bucks, this is another another case where like the the recency bias is going to work in his favor because people remember that broken down depressing Bucks team from the Celtics series and forget that like the Bucks coming into last season we were talking about them looking pretty solid and they have they have a lot of a lot of talent and uh so all of it is positioned well for Giannis to go out and look superhuman and uh the other thing i would say is one of the reasons I I don't feel as great about Simmons um, in Philly is that they lost Ursan Ilyasova, and uh, w- the Bucks have Ursan and they have Brook Lopez, and those are perfect role players to kind of play off what Giannis does well. Very very good breakdown. Uh, now I want you to make a promise to me. Will you make this solemn pledge? Uh, and going forward, maybe raise your right hand and, and put your left hand on. Uh, <laughs> Whatever whatever religious text you hold dear, yeah. you need to pledge to me, Andrew, that you will not simply vote for LeBron James because he's the story of the league like you did with <laughs> Russell Westbrook two years ago. You can't take this mental oh, shortcut man. and ignore impact stats and you know on-off and all the other stuff that I'm always trying to get you to dig into and just say... Well, you got to boil it down. He was the guy everyone was talking about on a nightly Listen. basis, okay? We're, we're not going to judge this MVP race by fame. LeBron could very well win it. I want him to earn it. I don't want voters like you to hand it to him. I hope you know, and I hope that everyone listening knows, I have never been more correct than I was about voting Russell Westbrook to win 2017 MVP, Okay. It was about choosing the hard right over the easy wrong. It would have been very easy to just shit on Russ like all the other cool kids and say, oh, this guy sucks, blah, 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 blah. But he deserved it based on the regular season. You yourself said people should be voting for this stuff in a vacuum. Based on those 82 games, he was the most valuable player. But listen, I am 100% in the tank for Giannis. So... You don't have to worry about me. I am voting him MVP regardless of what happens. And by the way, so Nike released that Kaepernick stuff this week, the the Kaepernick uh, ad and everything. And it got me thinking about the, about the, the posters that I had on my wall growing up because the initial Kaepernick screenshot would have been very cool as a poster. And so I was thinking about posters. I used to have a poster of Deion Sanders and it was him standing on top of a, of the planet, and it was like a picture of of the planet, uh, planet Earth. Um, and uh, well, slow and, slow down before you go on. We should explain to our younger listeners. So you guys, you have like background images on your social media accounts. So back in the day, old guys like us, you could actually get a similar version to like a background image that you would put on your social media account. You could actually get it blown up and printed. And then you could use these little, you know, thumbtacks to kind of put it into the wall above your bed. And they called them posters. They're usually what, about like three feet by two feet. They yeah. had a lot of professional <laughs> athletes on them. I just, you know, people under 30, they might not know about this, Andrew. So well, continue, yes. Deion Sanders. And posters were awesome. And so, yes, I was thinking about Deion Sanders on top of planet Earth. And it was a Nike poster. And the caption was, Earth is covered by two-thirds water, and Deion Sanders covers everything else, or something like that. And it was awesome. Yep. <laughs> and so, 
uh, as I was writing this post this morning, I was thinking Nike, if they haven't already, should really think about releasing a poster of Giannis next to planet Earth. And the the tagline should be the Greek shall inherit the Earth. What do you oh, think about that? Andrew, this is the <laughs> single best thing you've ever said in the Open Floor podcast history. I am so impressed. You really went... You started at the bottom with your Westbrook take about 30 seconds ago, but you went straight to the top with that one. But you should not give these away for free, Andrew. First of all, you should be trading this for the free sneakers you're always begging for. Second of all, <laughs> I mean, that's a great idea. You should be working on retainer with their uh, marketing. Exactly. Department. I love it. Exactly. So any Nike employees or Bucks employees, that's a free idea. Okay, that one's on me. Um, go go do your best. Uh, but with that, yeah, we don't need to talk about LeBron. I'm sure we'll talk about him all year long. Okay, but just real quick on LeBron. Is he just going to win the award? I mean, is it going to be so overwhelming? Like just well, all let's the say excitement, this. you know, like is it just going to be one of these things where – you know, legacy, you know, career achievement award, you know, all the hype, new look, everyone's buying the jerseys, celebrities are at the game, and it just becomes one of those things where it's like, okay, it's his turn to reward him, you know? Is it's just gonna yeah. happen. Feels like it uh, might be inevitable. That's the vibe I'm getting. And and part of it is that I, I feel like we're in a zone where everyone is rooting for LeBron to be great and no one really wants to criticize him. And all most of that is coming from a, a really good place. Like we like LeBron and it's more fun to enjoy him and appreciate how great he's been. Uh, but I just think that like we're, we've taken off our critical glasses with him to some degree. And if the, if he takes that Lakers team, which is better than people realize, um, like if, if they win 52 games, I feel like he probably wins it. What do you think? I think you summarized it very well there and also in your article. All right, what else do we got today? Alex says, can we have a quick discussion on breakout season candidates for this year in the NBA? I'm talking players who are ready to burst their way onto the scene next season and prove that the ceiling is the roof. I, for one, think that no one is going to make that Oladipo-type jump. However, I think we may be seeing Dennis Smith Jr., as a Devin Booker level prospect by the end of the season. Um, do you have any nominations here, Ben? I, Dennis Smith is a good one, except that I don't totally believe in him. Um, I, but I think that this season is going to be a big test for him. What do you think? Um, I don't see anyone necessarily in the Oladipo mold, but I do have a bunch of young guys who we kind of discussed at length during the top 100 process. And I just thought I'd run through them. You know, maybe we could just do them quickly. I mean, number okay. one, we mentioned him earlier, uh, Jamal Murray. Uh, I think he's got a chance to be in this most, most improved player conversation. His three-point shooting at his age in terms of his volume and efficiency has been really good. I think he's in a great offensive system for him to put up really efficient numbers. And uh, I think they're just going to be more stable team next season with Millsap back healthy. I think he's just one of those guys who's going to wind up putting himself up up a tier from where he is uh, currently. Does that mean he's going to break out into an all-star candidate? No, probably not. Um, but right. I think he's going to now be starting to mention in like, oh, wow, the West has so many great point guards. Like, I think he's going to kind of get himself into that group, if that makes sense. Yeah, I, I, I think Murray is the most obvious candidate. Um, 
in part because he's going to get a lot of opportunities in Denver. And, uh, and yeah, it, it just kind of feels like it's time for him. The other guy, I would say, Brandon Ingram. I don't know where you have him on the top 100, but he's probably 20 spots lower than he should be. And I think that mm, whatever no, happens, <laughs> we're going to turn around in, in nine months and be very impressed by Brandon Ingram. You're in the tank for Ingram for no good reason. He actually did make the list of guys I wanted to talk to you about, though, so I'm glad you mentioned him. Uh, he's got a lot of areas where he can improve, and he has already made some progress in those areas, like you know, crucial areas in terms of being uh, comfortable with the ball as he gets more often, being able to uh, create offense for himself one on one. You know, being at least somewhat comfortable shooting the three pointer, even though that's not really his strength. And then just finding ways to use his length to get points around the basket. I mean, those are all positive developments, and I think he's going to be a big beneficiary. Uh, of LeBron arriving there. To me, Ingram is the X factor for the entire Lakers season. If he's actually as good as you think he is, uh, they're going <laughs> to they're going to be shape. they're going to be in really good shape and everyone's going to be calling LeBron a genius for like, you know, hand selecting another great uh, prospect like he did with Kyrie a few years ago. Um, one other name re- related to Murray though. He's okay. already really good, but I do think people still qualify the praise that he receives with a little bit too much, uh, you know, carefulness. Like, people don't really want to just come out and say Jokic is like this incredible player because there's that small group of guys who are like such diehard Jokic stands that they wind up like, you know, almost being, a, you know, a stereotype. It's like, oh, you're a Jokic fan. I think Jokic is going to be, uh, at the end of this season, regarded as sort of like a consensus, like locked in, say, top 20 type player. Okay. Um where his impact offensively, his passing ability, he's just going to be regarded as like, you know, one of the very best passing guys of all time. I think they're, like I said, Denver's going to have a nice winning season and all of their main guys are going to kind of be in line for a kind of a reputation uh, bump. And I think that will kind of find Jokic into this category where he's not like this polarizing guy. He's more of someone that everybody agrees is really, really good. Yeah. You know, I was thinking about it and I realized that what really kind of drives me crazy sometimes with the Jokic type arguments, because it, it they happen with other guys and it's not just Jokic, but it, you get these kind of, you the Jokic zealots, let's call them. They will throw out numbers, which they'll throw out like wind shares numbers or something which say that Jokic is clearly better than someone like DeMarcus Cousins a year ago or or Carl Towns or and like they act like it's an objective fact and and everyone else needs to sort of like pay attention to what the real truth is and it's not only not true but like super super obnoxious and uh and that that's kind of I think what rubs a lot of people the wrong way um about the the way people sort of stand out for guys like that guys who are off the radar but i hear what you're saying and i hope that happens because Jokic is a guy who's 100 to 1 for the mvp probably not going to be in that mix but like thinking no, it i'm through, not going that far i'm not i'm not the, going that far at all no, but no, I, no. I do but the version yeah. of, of of a season where Jokic dominates and the nuggets are awesome and they have the one of the three best offenses in the league like everybody can get behind that and it'd be great for the west it'd be great for basketball fans and league pass heads like and we should all be rooting for that 
I mean, I think there is an argument to be made that he deserves to be compared to a guy like Towns. I mean, they both have a huge offensive impact and they both have some, you know, real issues defensively. Uh, I can understand why you would say, look, Towns is just a better player. I mean, that that's your opinion. But I think there can be a reasonable uh, argument made right now yeah. uh, that, that Jokic is. But where, where it goes too far is when people are saying, okay, Jokic is a better young prospect than Embiid, right? Like there right. are people out there who make that argument. That is a bridge too far for me. Um, but I do think that we've had like Towns versus Anthony Davis in a couple years past. And I think, you know, coming into this, you know, this next 12 month cycle, I could see Jokic passing towns in consensus opinion of of basketball fans. Now, well, it would and, take a a really strong year for Jokic. It, you know, there's obviously some hypotheticals involved there, but I could see that happening. And just to be clear, I'm cool with someone who thinks that Jokic is better than Towns. What annoys me is when you throw out an arcane stat to act as though it, like it's objectively true and anyone who doesn't realize it is being an idiot is that's like a bridge too far. I'm fine. We can all think crazy shit. It's just don't act like it's objectively true. Um, But I hear you and and I, the Abid stuff is crazy, but the towns thing is really interesting because they have a lot of the same weaknesses and like Jokic opens up the floor in a way that towns doesn't. And it is a good debate. So, um, I'm with you, and I hope that the Nuggets are good this year. I'm glad it's a good debate. You will enjoy uh, the top 100 uh, coming up here can't in a week or two. Wait. No spoilers. I can't wait. I- All right, so do you have anything else there on the breakout candidates? Well, on the Lakers thing, what about Josh Hart rather than Brandon Ingram? Doesn't Josh Hart seem like he could be a really, really nice fit with LeBron? Obviously, his ceiling, okay, maybe not as high. But when you're looking at guys who are going to be like maybe in LA's closing lineups, playing big minutes when it matters, I I just like Hart's fit better than a lot of the other guards that they've got on the roster, uh, better than a lot of the veterans that they signed this summer. And, you know, in terms of being able to be a really quality three-point shooter, he's already that. And now you've got LeBron setting him up with the best looks he's ever going to see in his entire career, right? Like, couldn't we see Josh Hart kind of you know, be, uh, you know, in this conversation above some of the other Lakers youngsters in terms of like the most important guys that LeBron's got around him, or is that going too far? Am I getting too deep into the summer league sauce? (laughs) I don't know. That's my answer is I don't know. I'm a little suspicious because I have loved Josh Hart for the last couple of years. He's from DC and I've been rooting for him and I, I, I think he's good. I'm just not sure quite how good he is. And the version that we saw at Summer League almost seemed too good to be true. And so I don't want to jinx him with too many expectations for what he's going to do next to LeBron. I do think he should start. And I like he looked good in the games he started last year, too. And, and he was very solid. And uh, so I'm pro Josh Hart, but let's just be careful here. I think Ingram is a much safer bet to be very, very good next to LeBron. And Hart, is kind of, if, if he's good too, that's a, a bonus. That's true. Lower expectations on uh, on Josh Hart. Um, okay, a couple other real quick. DeJounte Murray is going to have to have a huge season. There we now go. Now that Manu retired. I mean, well, you got Manu, Danny Green, Kyle Anderson, 
uh, Kawhi and Tony Parker all leaving that rotation. I mean, Deontay Murray is going to be getting like Westbrook touches this season. You know what I mean? Like he's going to be getting as much as he could possibly handle. Um, And, you know, all jokes aside, like, okay, his offensive role probably won't be that big because he's a, he's been a pretty limited offensive player basically across the board. Uh Um, But this is going to be a year for the man they call baby boy to grow up fast. Right. And, And so we'll see. Well, I'm glad you mentioned him because really my three candidates, I have only had a handful of, of true passion projects on this podcast the past few years. And Zach Levine uh, was one of them oh. back in like 2016 <laughs> or 2017. Didn't really end, end very well. D'Angelo Russell was another one. And DeJounte Murray was my my most recent one, probably. I still believe in all three of those guys. All three of them are breakout candidates and any one of them could go out and have an awesome year and kind of like jump up a tier. DeJounte is probably the most likely at this point because the Spurs will give him the best opportunity, but those are my three. Okay. I got one last kind of wild card one for you. What about if a giant setback was just a setup for a giant comeback for Markel Fultz? Ooh, I he's in the Josh Hart category where I thought about him and I then decided that I do not want to put too much pressure on him uh, with expectations. But certainly it's possible, you know? There's the only one way to go but up. Only one way to go but up. And, you know, if he had just been injured all of last season and sat out, I think expectations would be fairly good for him, you know? Like, not as yeah. high as, as for Simmons last year, but still you know, uh, somewhat there. So if he's pulled his stuff together over the summer, uh, he is the kind of guy where we left, you know, we left him off the top 100, but of guys who might have like the raw talents to make us look terrible for doing that. Um, he sure. would be a, a guy on that list. And last one, one of his teammates, uh, I thought he had a really, really nice season last year and he's still young enough where there could be some, you know, substantial improvement again. Uh, what about Dario Saric? Uh Yeah. I think Sarich, Sarich had his breakout last season, though. I, he he was much better next to Simmons than even Sixers believers expected, and he was he was great from three. And uh, I think to expect him to be much better than that is probably unrealistic. But as as a really solid fourth option as a starter, uh, Sarich is great, and and I think that's kind of what his NBA destiny is going to be. So take it to the bank, guys. Andrew's been saying under Sixers the whole way. Obviously, it's going to go <laughs> over Sixers, and Dario Saric is going to have a gigantic Dario breakout. Dario Saric is going to be unstoppable. Absolutely. Um, yeah. yeah. No, I actually hear you. He's probably closer uh, to his ceiling than a lot of the names I just mentioned, but I think he was one guy who did really become significantly more valuable last season, and I'm not even sure if we mentioned him all year long. So just thought he'd get a little love there. Okay, well, moving on here, we've got some real basketball news to hit before we close out. Uh, We'll start with the Suns. Austin says, so Houston was able to dump Ryan Anderson onto the Suns. Do you guys think that opens up any possibilities for Houston in the immediate future? Also, I just remembered that about three months ago, I messaged Ryan Anderson on all social media and told him to renounce his contract. He never answered me, but I think he listened. Uh, so there's the, the the rocket side of that trade. And then Michael from Adelaide says, 
To recap this last move, the Suns traded Brandon Knight, who they originally traded the uh, the Lakers' unprotected pick for, and Marquise Chris, who they traded two first-round picks to, to select in 2016 for Ryan Anderson and DeAnthony Melton. This recap, of course, skates over the tangled web of us trading two more picks to get that Lakers pick back in the Mikhail Bridges trade. Anyway, the Suns essentially gave up four first-rounders for these two players who we gave up on in a salary dump. In a vacuum, this is another depressing move for a thoroughly depressed franchise. But allow me to present this trade through orange and purple-tinted glasses. Anderson and Knight are both heavily flawed players coming off major injuries, but don't move the needle for either team. Chris has rarely looked good and doesn't even look like he belongs in the league. The only player involved in this swap who analysts agree might have some potential is DeAnthony Melton. Doesn't that mean the Suns won this trade? So Ben, give me nine. We shouldn't have read both those emails. Nobody really cares about this trade, but give me 90 seconds on, on what went down last week. Well, I thought Michael did a, a really nice job of summarizing the stumbling, bumbling, and rumbling of Ryan McDonough <laughs> nice. in yeah. Phoenix. Can you believe all of those assets he gave up just to basically take on the Ryan Anderson contract and you know a second-round pick who, yes, a lot of basketball dorks are high on, but come on, like they're not that high on him well now, i'm I pretty high just, on d'anthony melton though he's he's gonna okay, be well, awesome that's fine if you were that high on him you just take it with one of your first round picks if you're phoenix you don't have yep. to orchestrate this entire <laughs> very uh, fair you know but i think look the brandon knight thing was very difficult for anyone to foresee i don't actually hold the end result of that against uh, sun's management all that much uh, his career fell to pieces. I'm sure that their organization played some role in that, but obviously health and other factors uh, you know, did as well. So that's sort of tough breaks. They should never have traded that pick for him in the first place, but it's not the end of the world. The Chris scenario part of it, though, to me is really gets at why I always criticize their front office, because they knew they had a damaged locker room the whole way. They had to know that, right? For years and years, guys are throwing towels, forcing their way out of town. They took a big you know, public posture about Goran Dragic and, and Isaiah Thomas when they made those deals. You knew the type of player that you needed to try to get in there to turn things around. Marquise Chris checked none of those boxes maturity, rawness, all this stuff was who this guy was. There were reasons to draft him in the first round, but none of those reasons were going to fit with what Phoenix had going on for them. So not only did they draft him, but they traded multiple assets to get him, right? Now, right at the moment where they start to maybe pull out of this tailspin just slightly, right? Like They're sort of getting some momentum with the Ariza move. They get the number one pick, so they've got maybe a foundational center there in the middle, the moment where you actually have some structure to try to milk something positive out of Chris, that's when you cut bait with him, right? Like that makes no sense on every level. First of all, they never should have drafted him, but I'm not totally sure that they should have traded him at this moment. I think he's awful. I would not want him on my team if I was a fan. I would wear a blindfold during games, so I would not have to actually watch what he does on the court on a regular basis. Yeah. But you can't tell me that the logic tracks here at any point. And if the idea is just, look, we made a mistake, we're giving up, we just have to admit it and, and move forward, 
that's fine, but you also have to own the original mistake. And I haven't seen Phoenix's front office do that at all. And certainly, <laughs> if I'm the ownership group, Andrew, if I'm the owner, I'm looking at this guy and saying, wait a minute. We knew when it happened that if you drafted Bender and Chris, that was a draft that could get you fired. We, I said that at the time. Lots of people said that at the time. You've okay. already given up on Chris, and Bender's completely, you know, probably next, right? Doesn't that draft have to get you fired? How is isn't this Hennigan part two so, and, and just okay. no one's talking about it? It it is sort of Hennigan part two, except that there's real hope in Phoenix, so that makes the the discussion a little bit more complicated in terms of how you want to move forward. Uh, but there's no question McDonough has made four or five different blunders along the way that would have gotten him fired elsewhere. Um, for a different owner anywhere else I anywhere just, else not just elsewhere he, he would be fired by any other organization right i mean how would he be able <laughs> to survive have this? had ernie grunfeld for like 25 years um but okay well look if the lakers you know look at the bus like you know J- jim bus in la right he gets run out of town real quick and he made one tenth as many mistakes as mcdonough's made I'm just curious. You're 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 advocating for Ryan McDonough to call a press conference and apologize for the Marquise Chris draft pick and circle back and and own it in your words. I like. Well, I, I don't just, know. I, he doesn't have to call a new draft pick. I'm just saying at media day. First of all, I hope somebody in the Suns media <laughs> decides to ask him what the heck happened with Marquise Chris and what does it say about your organization that you get a raw player and he barely improves in the two years you have him and then you immediately kick him to the curb and try to move forward with somebody else as if the entire situation never happened. What steps are you taking to address your organization so that these other draft picks who you've drafted and not developed that same process doesn't happen here again with a guy like deandre ayton or some of the other young guys that you've brought in right like he has to have done some level of thinking about it and i think if he gets asked those questions he needs to own it directly and say yep i screwed up okay that was a bad draft it happens we're moving forward like have you ever seen the movie he owes them that have you seen the da vinci code no i haven't Okay, well, there's a scene in there where a member of Opus Day is lashing himself, and I feel like that's what you want Ryan McDonough <laughs> to do in public. <laughs> like, I don't know. He's not. He hasn't been a good GM, but like, I I can't blame him for trying to just sort of like cut bait with Marquise Chris. I, I would have tried to do that with Dragon Bender as well. Um, but the, I like that move for both sides. If we're being serious here, I think that once you have the young guys. Uh, that you want to build around, which it's, it seems like Phoenix does with Aiton and Booker and Bridges and the French point guard they got. Once you have a couple of those pieces, it makes sense to go get veterans who will actually give them a chance to succeed on the floor. And they're doing that with Trevor Ariza and Ryan Anderson can help that cause too. And particularly next to Aiton, like it's going to be very helpful to have Ryan Anderson there to space the floor. And He's he's not a guy you can play against the Warriors in the Western Conference Finals, but he's going to help raise the baseline in Phoenix, I think. Um, and it, it's a low-risk move because like they weren't going to do anything with Brandon Knight anyways. So I hear all your McDonough criticisms, but I actually think that this has been a decent summer for them. It's not like a home run, and it's the way they manage the draft picks – uh, back in June wasn't great, and I would have tried to keep that heat asset too. 
but uh, but they're in good shape, and it makes sense to invest in the success of like the three or four main young guys. No, I hear you, and I think fit-wise, for sure, having Ariza Anderson as your three-four around, you know, Booker as a lead guard, and Aiden as the center, who's going to need a lot of space to be effective, it definitely fits. I guess my question is, don't those guys just try to like? move on after this season like are those guys definitely really locked in as like future sons or are they just sort of like there to try to work their way <laughs> into a sons. new contract yeah no oh, I i'm serious that's, like, that's a valid question like, you have one question about okay their age like how much more are they going to have in the tank right but then you also have the other question which is like nobody really wants to go to phoenix if they have their choice right like ariza takes a big cash out and anderson realizes you know he's not really going to be in the picture in houston so he makes a smart business decision for himself where he knows he's going to go get a lot of minutes and can work for his next deal, right? Yeah. Like, are those guys long-term pieces that make sense for in a couple of years? Or is this going to be just a short-lived experiment where, you know, you try to sell Booker on the idea that you're really committed to winning, you're trying to turn things around, but then you wind up just empty-handed down the road? I think that's my question. My other question is, what are they going to do at point guard and how much is he going to overpay for Terry Rozier in a trade? Because I think that's the next domino to fall here, right? I mean, yeah, I look, I will be livid if they trade Mikhail Bridges to the Celtics and give Boston another wing just so that they can get Terry Rozier to win like 30 or 35 games. So I, I will be so pissed off. I don't think the Celtics are going to trade Rozier, though. Like I'm sure McDonough will call, but I think the Celtics would want to keep Rozier as Kyrie insurance, both for the injuries during the season and, like, who knows what's going to happen this summer. Yeah, I mean, I still think Kyrie's going to be there long-term, so I'm not totally concerned or or buying into this idea of the insurance angle on Rozier. Um, I I mean, I I said months ago that I thought Rozier kind of made sense as a trade target for either Orlando or Phoenix, a team that really needs a point guard, right? Um, What about if it was Josh Jackson rather than Bridges uh, to to Boston? (laughs) Josh Jackson is like 6'8", Marcus Smart. There's no way. Like, I will be so pissed off. Josh Jackson... like is the perfect Danny Ainge player and that would be Ainge's first ask but uh that's what I'm saying well we know Ryan's gonna just hand out first asks I mean he doesn't care like he's not trying to negotiate (laughs) he'll just give you whatever you want no we're not gonna let the Celtics stockpile another former lottery pick um but okay so is that unrealistic? Am I just pipe dreaming here, Josh Jackson for Rozier? I mean, you, yeah. you get Rozier. He's ready to be a, a starting point guard. He's at the point where he's going to need a new contract next year. Phoenix would be in position to pay him next summer. You have now a dynamic backcourt with two guys who could do a little bit with the ball in both Rozier uh, and Booker. And then you've got the spread options around those guys. Uh, and Rozier and Aiton can run some pick and roll. Booker and, and Aiton can run some pick and roll. I mean, if you're Phoenix, wouldn't that be kind of tempting wouldn't you talk yourself into it and don't you have to have a better plan than whatever they do right now at the point guard spot because you don't have night and you don't you got rid of Alfred Payton I mean you've tried all these other guys you know plug and play guys and they just never worked out don't you need somebody who's sort of ready no, to do it I don't think so I think Phoenix is taking the long view and it's the first time in several years we you could say that uh but yeah, I nothing think, says the long view like Trevor Ariza and Ryan Anderson. Come on, they're trying no, to win. Like, they, they don't want to. They, they don't want to be uh, okay. de- depressing and demoralizing again. They're All trying right. to be respectable this year. Here's that's that's very true. Uh, he, let's say this: 
Phoenix should be taking the long view, and I don't think you give up on a former top five pick for a point guard who wouldn't start on at least 20 teams in the NBA. And like Rozier is fine, but the idea that he's worth giving up on Josh Jackson is fucking crazy. And so, okay, well, they, but remember, they did just, I don't, I like the answer is definitely not Ryan Anderson or Ryan McDonough, like all bets are off. Yeah, I'm just saying they just gave up on a top 10 pick for Houston's sixth best power forward, okay? okay. Like, it's not like they're, like, <laughs> getting great value on these moves, okay? Oh, man. I can't believe you've turned me into a Ryan McDonough defender. Uh, I'm going to have to be standing next to him at the press conference apologizing. Um, I yeah. You guys can lash each other. It'll be great. <laughs> I, I do not trust the Suns, but I hope that they just kind of, like, let this play out. Because if you're Phoenix... You can, instead of trading a, a former top five pick, just wait until this summer and you can throw a huge offer sheet at Rozier and see what happens. And again, it's Terry Rozier. Like he shouldn't start on a playoff team. So that's another problem that they'd have to consider. I do think Booker is a winner here though, at least in the short term, right? Because he has not played a meaningful game in his entire career. And I think it, the best defense of what Phoenix has done is we know who our franchise player is, Booker. Yeah, and we're trying to make sure that he's happy. And in the NBA, you have to cater to franchise guys and you have to make you have to walk before you can run in terms of competing with free agents and getting some guys who are solid known quantities who fit with, you know, Booker and then, you know, Aiton, who, you know, could be a real player in a couple of years. Um, that's walking before you're running. I think and, that's and the best defense for them. That's why I like it. And that's why I think. These moves are not mutually exclusive with taking the long view. I think you're probably right, though, that they're doing this to try and just win now because they've been misguided every step of the way, and so we have no reason to believe that this year is any different. But I do think that these are accidentally the right moves because you want to surround the... Once you have the guys, you want to give them a chance to succeed. And uh, Ariza will help probably more than Ryan Anderson, but both of them will will kind of give Booker and Aiton some room to breathe. I mean, the, the one really remarkable thing about the Chris trade that I forgot to mention was I think it was the first thing that and last thing that Vlade's ever won. I mean, in that trade, he got Bogdan Bogdanovich, Scal. We won't talk about Georgios Papianis. That, okay, that wasn't great. Uh, and a, a, a second round pick. That's not bad. I mean, I think Vladi, that's like his greatest accomplishment as a front <laughs> office executive. So this is another award. And another thing I want, uh, you know, McDonough to apologize for is he actually allowed Vladi Divac to win a trade. There you go. Um, well, that has been our bi-monthly shit on the sun segment hosted by Ben Golliver. <laughs> <laughs> and um, on that note, uh, let's finish off. Alex says, Will Instagram's very own at Ben.Golliver finally convert to the superior and much better Harry Potter by deciding to order the new Hogwarts School of Witchcraft and Wizardry Lego set? Have you seen the Hogwarts Lego, Ben? Of course, Andrew. How many times do I send you Lego things every single week? They never get a reply. <laughs> I, I believe I, sh- I sent you a video of this like all Lego Bugatti, which has got to be the most valuable car in the entire world because it's one of one. And it took these guys like probably a decade to make. I mean, they made literally <laughs> a full size <laughs> yeah. drivable Bugatti out of Legos. But this is my problem, Andrew. Like they're adult Lego ideas 
just need to be completely rethought out. I know there's lots of Harry Potter fans out there. I know there's a lot of Star Wars fans out there, but there's also a lot of reality-based people. And I don't want to have to compromise my whole worldview by pretending some little kid you know, is real and wizards and magic and all this or pretending that like we're in this global fight for space superiority when there's so many amazing things you could make out of Legos right here and right now. Like I've even seen fake Lego knockoff Legos, like bootleg Legos of say Michigan Stadium, the football team, or yeah. like the football stadium, right? Like let's get a real Michigan Stadium from Lego. That's not so hard to ask. Can we get uh, Stonehenge? <laughs> Can we get the Grand Canyon? Can we get uh, the Golden Gate Bridge, which I've mentioned previously? Can we get like a three-foot-tall Statue of Liberty? I could go on and on and on and on. And they know that these are good ideas because they've made Big Ben. They've made like the Tower Bridge. Like They've kind of flirted with it, but they need to go deeper into the real-world landmarks. Andrew, I can't deal with the Hogwarts castle. And what I really can't deal with is you are about to tell me that you bought it, didn't you? I did not buy it. I did think long and hard about buying it. Uh, This was like early August. There was nothing to do. And I was just, I was looking for something to occupy me on my vacation, actually. And I considered joining the Lego VIP club, which would have allowed me to purchase the Hogwarts set (laughs) on August 15th before its official release on September 1st. Uh, I didn't because it's the the Hogwarts Lego is like $400 and it would have been uh, the type of thing that would have been kind of embarrassing to have in my, in my living room. Like I'm into it. I don't know. Maybe I shouldn't go that far. Maybe I'll 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 buy it at Christmas or something. Um, but yeah, add it to your Christmas list here. This sounds like a perfect <laughs> gift. I mean, I I like you a lot. It's I don't like you four hundred dollar Christmas present right, enough, exactly. right? But I, but I'm sure your wife does. I'm sure your parents do. I mean, that, why not throw that on there? Just say this is the only thing I want, and, and no socks, no underwear. You know, I, I'm already covered by Mac Weldon. Just let them know you've already got the VIP status with Mac Weldon. You don't need any more clothes for Christmas. All you want is that Harry Potter Lego. It's a lot of money to to waste on like an inside podcast joke, but I wouldn't put it past me at some point. Because look, Harry Potter is awesome, and the Hogwarts recreation that they put together is also really, really impressive. And would be completely lost on you since you're you're a reality-based person, but uh, it was very solid. I was impressed, so... Um, on that note, do you know what I was impressed by Andrew? I was impressed by like 15 or 20 people on Instagram tagging me on that Bugatti Lego set. There were so many people who were like getting really excited and it really showed me the depth and the thought and the care, uh, of our open floor globe community. And I really, really appreciated all that. I also appreciate five-star reviews on Apple podcasts. So go to Apple podcasts, search open floor. It's two words, find our page scroll down it will say rate and review tap the five stars it's just that simple and also comments questions concerns preemptive arguments about the top 100 send them all to openfloormail at gmail.com openfloormail at gmail.com andrew i have a sneaking suspicion i'm going to see you in new york next week is that right that is the tentative plan yes and uh what i wanted to add though is Yes, as the top 100 gets released next week, 
send us questions. We are going to do two podcasts, one which will be released next week and then another which will come the following week. One of one of them, the first one is just going to be me arguing with Ben and uh, and then the second one we'll hear from you guys. Um, and we got we also got a bunch of questions, some of which we didn't get to today that we will hit next week. But for now, Ben, uh, I will talk to you soon. Good luck getting to New York. Good luck with the lemon tree and the fire ants. And uh, yeah, we'll check in next week. No, I'm actually taking lessons from World War II in color and applying them to my battle with the ants, okay? I, I put some <laughs> landmines out there for them. I actually built some trenches, uh, and I also sprayed them from the air, uh, you know, with some uh, with some spray, you know, kind of reminiscent of the bombing campaign. So these ants do not stand a chance. A- Andrew, until next week when I will tentatively see you, according to you, <laughs> yeah. I will talk to you. Take it easy, man. Another great edition of Open Floor is in the books. Did you know Locked On has a daily podcast for all 30 NBA teams? If you're a Lakers fan, search Locked On Lakers. A Celtics fan, search Locked On Celtics. Warriors fans, search Locked On Warriors. Yes, all 30 NBA teams have a daily bite-sized podcast on the Locked On Podcast Network. Search on Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts for Locked On, your favorite team. Or tell your smart speaker to play podcasts Locked On, your favorite team. It's the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day.